I'm Carrie Miller. We're here in Little Falls, Minnesota at the Black and White Restaurant with a gathering of citizens and health professionals and community leaders to talk about mental health and social isolation in the rural Midwest and rural Minnesota. The town hall is part of an ongoing series called The Rural Voice, and we are grateful for the support of our sponsors. The Initiative Foundations in Minnesota, the Otto Bremer Trust, Compeer Financial, the Center for Rural Policy and Development, and Minnesota Public Radio. We are in season two of The Rural Voice, and here's how it works. We travel to rural towns in the Midwest, we gather a group of citizens together, and then we listen in, and I pose some questions. As our audience uses creativity and imagination and commitment to find solutions for the challenges that are confronting their communities. What's been really fantastic about the series, too, is a lot of people have come with their own lived experiences and and anecdotes and stories. And those have been among the most powerful things that we've heard in the series so far. So I encourage you to share your stories with us as well. All of our Rural Voice discussions will air on Minnesota Public Radio. And today, it's a topic that all of us are, I think, more acutely aware of since the pandemic. But rural communities have been wrestling with this for some time, before the pandemic. The consequences of disconnection, loneliness, isolation from friends and family. It can put people at greater risk for addiction, depression, chronic diseases, and suicide. But it can also deeply affect the overall quality of life in a rural community. That's something I really want to talk about, what this means to other community members who are concerned about their fellow citizens in their community. Social isolation in some ways can be contagious. So tonight, a candid conversation about why isolation has taken hold in many rural towns and how to tackle it with some creative ideas. So let's get started. I just have a little bit of a lightning round and I hope you'll raise your hand to answer some of these questions. Raise your hand if you have struck up a conversation with a stranger in the last month. No, wait, no. Really? All right. For the radio audience, a whole lot of hands just went up. Really? I thought I was going to snag you on that. You raised your hand right away. You did? How, how did that happen? I moved to a new community, and... So there were a lot of new people that I just didn't know. So when the opportunity comes, you have to grab it. Did you move to the community thinking, how am I going to make new friends? I mean, I'm an outsider to this town. Or did you approach it differently? I decided that there were places where I could volunteer if I so choose. But I also was open to the fact that I've got new neighbors who are very welcoming and so my front door is open. Wow. You, both ways. you are a great example. I'm really glad you're here. Who else? I saw somebody else with their hand raised. Yeah, right back there. Yeah, tell me who you are. I'm Jessica, Jessica Cambron. Okay. And you are with? Veteran Resource and Enrichment Center. Did you start this conversation with a stranger through work or in your personal life? I've actually done both. Um, I am a teacher, and I just moved to a new school, so lots of new families, lots of kids, so there's a lot of conversations there. But then also with my um, work as a volunteer with Veteran Resource and Enrichment Center, um, we do a lot of outreach, and there's a lot of opportunities to be connecting with people in the community, veterans who are experiencing challenges with mental health and isolation. Was a little scary for you to strike up that conversation with a stranger in a new town? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is at first. Um, a lot of times I'm able to overcome my fear of doing it knowing that they might not have the, the confidence to do it with anyone at all. And I have some knowledge and maybe I can provide some help or just some camaraderie that they wouldn't get otherwise. Here's another question. When's the last time you invited someone into your home that you didn't know? Somebody who was a... Oh, not as many... Ha- not as many... Ha- what? 
No hands? Not you. You're, you are great. You, have, you, ma'am, have no problems. I can see that. Nancy, tell me about yourself. Uh, my name is Nancy Eitner. I um, had someone stop at my house unexpectedly to um, actually for a fundraiser that the local school was doing. It was a, a young teen and his mom stopped and um, wanted to sell their their fundraising, um, their little cards that they were selling. And so I invited them in and we had a cup of coffee and a little chat and got to know each other. They had recently moved to the neighborhood and didn't really know anyone around. So it was nice to get to know them a little bit. Cool. You know what they say about Minnesotans, right? That we'll give you directions, but never to our houses, right? Ah, everybody laughs knowingly. Who else has had somebody come to their house that they didn't know, a stranger basically, or some, a new friend? Yeah? And you invited them into your house. All right. Let me squeeze back here. Thank you. All right. And Amanda, tell me about yourself. Um, my name is Amanda Ludwig. I'm here with Arrows Family Services, um, but I am also an adult foster care family provider with 245D waivered services. So between social workers and actual clients moving in with us, we do have complete strangers living with us, not just visiting us. <laughs> How does that go? How do you prepare yourself and your family for that? Uh, well, we still have three children at home, so we have to also make sure we have some safety precautions in place. Um, but usually we get a phone call from a social worker that says, I got somebody that needs some place to go. Do you have a bed? And then we have to sit down as a family, sit down with the social workers, and really decide if it's in the best interest of everybody and all of the parties involved. So That is really above and beyond, Amanda. Wow, that's really impressive. Raise your hand... If you have made a brand new friend, not professionally, in the last year. Okay. Not as much. Yes. I'm coming over here to Candace. Tell me, tell me who you are. Uh, Candace Zimmerman. Okay. How'd this happen? Actually, my kids made friends, and I made friends <laughs> with their parents. So, <laughs> Is that a little scary? It is scary. Even as an adult, I tell my daughter all the time, it's hard to make friends even as an adult. So, yeah, i got to put yourself out there. I know. Okay, so that, that's really some of what I want to talk about tonight, why more of us do not put ourselves out there and why other people hesitate to do the same. Any ideas? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with um, judgment and whether it's new cultures or... And I, and I grew up in this area, um, 65 years living in this area, and farmers will talk to farmers, but um, they're pretty leery of anybody new coming in. Um, I remember in the 70s when we had a lot of Amish neighbors moving in and oh my goodness there was a lot of concern about that and now we have a lot of Amish neighbors Um, so I think there's some fear is often associated with that Uh, social media has not done us any favors although it's we can get a lot of news out but we also set ourselves up sometimes to be vulnerable and and some people are really hurtful and so to be able to step away from that and say that's really that's really their problem, but it's taken me a long time to figure that out because there's been a lot of hurtful things that have happened, and um, and so now I'm in a whole new situation, not only supporting my staff, but I have a husband who just entered hospice, and so there's some additional stress levels going on there, and people don't like to come to your house and visit when you have somebody dying in your house, so there's always these kind of preconceived notions And for those of us who do have mental health challenges, the stigma around, am I going to catch it? Are you dangerous? Um, All of those pieces. So I do have a T-shirt that says I'm one of those people that didn't wear that tonight. Um, But I'm glad that you you brought up the fact that, you know, 25% of us are struggling some way or somehow right now, and half of us will. Mm -hmm. And so... That fear of not of being vulnerable is because our communities, we're not going to know the response. I think you've really nailed it with judgment, too. Isn't that what we're all afraid of? Somebody will judge me in a way who doesn't really know me that well, but they're going to make a decision about me, 
and I won't be part of the community, whatever that is. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, you know, I think, of, I think of moving people up from the back row, and I'm thinking, are you guys all Catholic or Lutherans or something? Because we, we always sat in the back row. No, I didn't want to be, and I'm not particularly shy. I've been told that sometimes my filter goes off. I'm not unkindly, but I'm the kind of person who really likes to get things done and see change happen. And so I would never make a good legislator because they just spend too much time talking about things that, like, may not ever have any conclusion to them. That's a whole nother conversation. That's not this one tonight, but I have some views on that myself. Okay, I am looking for Monica. Monica, tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. Um, I'm a private practice mental health therapist in my... Um, main contract is through the Department of Agriculture in Minnesota, and I work as one of two legislative funded farm counselors. You were telling me that you visit with farm families who are in the midst of a crisis or dealing with social isolation. Tell me a little bit about the family that you saw. Was it yesterday or today? It was today. I actually just came from from a farm where husband, Vietnam vet, passed away. Um, wife and kids are working to keep the farm going. They feel very isolated, like they have no support. Part of it is she doesn't feel like people believe she can do it because she's female. Um, yeah, there's just lots of issues there. There's um, talking about social media. There's a lot of negativity about farming practices. Mm-hmm. And so they feel judged. And um, the geographic isolation comes into play being, you know, living down a long driveway, surrounded by trees and not seeing any cars even drive by. People don't see you. They don't see warning signs. They don't check in. So, yeah. Do you think some of this is she... It's possible her neighbors would like to help and don't know where to begin. Sometimes, like, those conversations about grief, right? Where do you begin? What do you think? Oh, I think that's definitely part of it. I think as a whole, even when we talk about, you know, when I teach suicide prevention, how do we ask that question? How it's it's easier, quote unquote, to just kind of skirt by or talk about them in our community versus going to them, talking to them and offering to help or asking if they need anything. Who else has had an experience where you yourself have felt like pretty alone, couldn't reach out, or you've been in contact with someone fairly recently who has been in that situation. I'm coming over to the pastor, because I'm sure. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, my name's uh, Andrea, I'm pastor at Bram Evangelical Lutheran Church. Um, my wife and I moved into the community about a year ago, um, and I'm going to take this opportunity to tell a story about myself. Um, So uh, queer, a relationship moving into the evangelical church in America, um, and um, ran into some judgment um, at first and um, and ended up needing for myself and my spouse to take a four-week mental health um, break just to um, re-get ourselves grounded in different things and um, looking and experiencing and expecting how churches um, can really be places where judgment is kind of the first thing people want to do when they walk in the door, um, but really they should be healing centers. And so um, trying to incorporate that where places, churches can be places where people come and gather together. So, Andrea, did you, tell me how you address this in the church. How do you talk to the, the congregation, maybe about some of your own personal experience, but, but also about how necessary it is to really be tuned in and aware that there are other people hurting and that there are things that we can do. I'm just curious about what you say. I don't think it's necessarily about what I say, but that I just keep on showing up, and I'm not afraid to tell people that I'm in pain, um, and that I'm also not afraid to tell people that I'm healing, that we're not just go from one hard thing to the next, but um, continue to grow, and that's what our, our faith and our, our hope is, right, that... Um, God, however you name the infinite being that you say, right, that 
that spirituality, that mindfulness is of you're inviting someone to be present with you in kind of your most loneliest times um, to kind of give you the perseverance and the resiliency that we've gained as a community um, throughout our whole lives to be able to um, do that together. And so um, optimism and hope, I would say, is what I proclaim the most. And, of course, love and unconditional, even for the people that have hurt me. Thank you. Really glad you came. Who else has had a, perhaps a recent conversation or an experience with someone who you could tell was hurting, you yourself were kind of looking for some kind of social connection? Hmm, who did I? Yes, sir. What's your experience? Tell me who you are and a little bit about your experience. Uh, Greg Spafford, a member of this community for a number of years. Um, I think the experience I want, and I'll talk more about myself if you want, but right now I'm thinking about the elderly woman that I just spoke of and spoke to the other day, uh, a spiritual mentor as well. And she was telling about her own sister that was very lonely. And certainly some of the pandemic added to it, but that we have so many seniors tucked away in their homes and just crying out. During, uh, even after the pandemic was lifted, she felt like, I'm not saying this happened, but it was her understanding that her parish had, had abandoned her. And in that feeling, she just didn't know who to reach out to at all. Certainly her sister, my friend, uh, helped out with that experience. But uh, to the point where even though she'd been a really, really good contributor and donor, she just didn't feel like that was her faith community anymore. So that was really so. That's another population: our seniors. And I have to admit, I'm now becoming a senior myself. I never would have guessed that. No. Uh, let me turn here to the um, Central Minnesota Council on Aging, since we're talking about seniors. Eleanor, tell me a little bit about what you do there. So I work in out of Brainerd, and I work in five counties in Region 5, and I am a community development, uh, in community development. And we work to, with organizations to help that, so that they have the resources they need so people can continue to live in their homes and their communities. Sometimes living in your own home is pretty isolating. Tell me a little bit about what you see. Well, um, we do see a lot of isolation, and in some of the uh, communities in the counties I work with, they're very isolated. It's a long distance. It might take a worker, you know, an hour and a half each way to get to their home, so it's difficult for them to get visitors. And, and um, in a lot of times, to the like the places that were active prior to COVID, shut, you know, close their doors and. And they've been slow to get back working and, and very active again. But um, we're seeing that there's, you know, revitalization coming with the senior centers and the different places and the community meals through, um, you know, the congregate meals where people can come together and share a meal. Um, that seems so simple, doesn't it? But it's important. I want to talk about some solutions here in a little bit. Steve, uh, let me come over to you, too. You're also on the Council on Aging in a different part of the state, right? Yes, we're in St. Cloud. What are you seeing? Well, one of the things that we started is a coalition to end social isolation and loneliness. And one of the areas, and this is a history I have with this, is the challenges that we have getting senior men engaged um, in many ways, both with their physical and as well as their mental health. So one of the things we did is we started a, a they're big in Australia, they're big in the UK, a men's sheds. And Do they amends what shed? shed. Yeah, yeah, it's a men's shed. Um, when I talk about this, the men are kind of you know sitting there thinking about it. Their wives are right up there saying, "How do I get my husband into the men's shed?" Um, but that's also kind of endemic about what happens with this is that the women tend to hold our emotions for us. And so getting the men involved in things like men's shed, one of the things that happens with retirement is they tend to lack meaning and purpose anymore. And they're just kind of languishing. So it's an opportunity to get them together around some meaningful activity. And they're very autonomous, self-centered. You can, you can design it however you want. And so we in Minnesota have more of them than any place in the United States right now. Really? So these sheds just pop up 
somewhere in somebody's backyard or what? Where? Well, uh, you do need a sponsor. I'm on the board of directors for Minnesota, and so we partnered with Whitney Senior Center to sponsor it, and then we just advertise men to come in, and it is up to the men to decide what they want to do. So there's autonomy. There's not a program. Some sheds just get together and have coffee and conversations. Others have speakers. We have the luxury of a, of a wood shop, so we were cutting bluebird houses that we put together with uh, with young children at a, at a church locally. So it's an opportunity for men to come together and we talk about doing things shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. Love that. I mean, that seems like a surprisingly simple solution, but it sounds effective. So how many sheds are there? Right now in Minnesota, I think we've got 13 of the 22 in the country. Wow, that's very cool. Glad you came. I want to do, I talked with someone earlier who is also um, dealing with some loneliness and depression for high school students. Tell me a little bit about what you saw when you were in the high schools as, as it pertains to this, because I think what we're getting is the scope of how many people are affected by this. And your name? My name is Anamaya. Um, I don't think it's different from when I left in 2019, to be honest. I have my own teenagers, so I also see that at home. Um, the, I don't know, there's so much to say about it, but, um, I think the biggest thing is connection. Um, I can say what, what the struggle, the lack is, it's the actual human connection. And so for me, when I was, um, working as a social worker, it was important to find ways to bridge that and to create that space. And I know that there's a lot of kids out there right now who, um, prefer the more online spaces. And I, I will say, because I have um, that in my own fa- family system, um, at first I, it really bothered me because I'm a huge believer in this mm-hmm. right here. What we're doing tonight? Right. Um, but I have seen the way that he has grown in a way that he might not grow in a school setting. Um, I was someone that was very anti-video games as a social worker until I saw it, I guess, in my own family. And um, so I think for me, uh, as someone who's a huge proponent of teenagers, um, I think it's looking for all the ways and being open, like now as me as a mother community member, being open to all the ways that we can connect but not forgetting to keep facilitating the connection. Like, this is one thing that's on my heart that I'll say, and then I'm going to stop. But um, as a parent, it is critical that we don't stop going after our kids. We cannot stop, even if they're receding. We have to continue that, um, was it Andrea talked about showing up? We have to continue to show up, even if they're receding. We continue to show up because they're, they won't forget that. They see it and they know it despite the emotions that they might be showing us. That's kind of what's coming up for me right now. Andrea, I want to come back over to you because, you know, at first glance, it would seem that what's happening with seniors and what's happening with students wouldn't be all that that there wouldn't be a lot of commonality. And yet, I've just got this sense that it is almost the same thing that is afflicting, you know, loneliness through all of these, through all of these people. What, what comes up for you on that? Well, I think people feel loneliness for a variety of different ways, but one thing that someone mentioned is a lack of identity, a lack of... Um, vocation, right? Purpose, meaning, um, and those are kind of the most vulnerable age groups in our time, right? People who have entered retirement and are asking, what am I supposed to do with my gifts that I've been given? And also in farming communities, and um, I grew up on the Iron Range, we learned that our goal primarily is to care for other people, right? And so the election of caring for ourselves in the sense of Yeah, so then we get to this point, it's like our value and our worth becomes caring for other people because that's how small towns were built. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's on that flip side. And then on the the younger um, flip side, it's how do do I know what I want to do in a world that I just see breaking, you know? 
how do I know what I want to do when I don't have any hope, when I've lost hope? Um, and the, what the connections between, um, so I'm a, a young pastor, so I, and I um, am a pastor in a denomination that's aging, so I spend a lot of time around the aging population, um, and we just have joy together um, because they're curious, curiosity, imagination, um, and that connection. And um, my uh, friend Kelly here, she's the um, coordinator at the Bram Event Center that um, we have a partnership in. And um, we have teenagers that are teaching um, an older generation how to use cell phones. And we can't even keep up with the class because there's so many people that just want to come and learn. Um, and so this, uh, when you think about it, the education aspect of people just wanting to be able to explore to use their imagination again. Um, but I was raised by my grandparents, and so I've always had a heart for um, grandparents and the elders in our community who have so much wisdom to share with us um, if they can find it within themselves to share it. Does anybody else have a, a reflection on the simplicity, the, the apparent simplicity of this and yet the difficulty of how to fix it. Yes, ma'am. Introduce yourself, if you will. My name is Meg. Pronouns are she, her. And my reflection won't be on the simplicity, but some of those barriers, which is what I've observed in my own family, and that is as we age, there can be some additional barriers that, that do keep us isolated even together. I watched this with my father, who was losing hearing, and like many of us, may have would resisted hearing aids, but also found himself really isolated as we would sit around playing cards, and we were clearly laughing and sharing a joke, and he hadn't heard it, and if that's ever happened to you, Even as a child, it can feel as though people are laughing at you and intentionally leaving you out. And so sometimes physical limitations that are a natural part of the aging process in many cases are also what keep us limited. They're the things that maybe sometimes keep us from wanting to volunteer because we don't want to be away from home for too long for lots of reasons. Uh, We don't want to be in spaces where we might not hear as well, especially with little children's voices, as an example, if you were going to volunteer. So lots of factors, and I I think that um, a compounding factor from the pandemic is that when you've been used to being in isolation, it's really hard sometimes to break out of that, and that can be for many of us. I personally work remotely, which is a, there's a great benefit to being able to work remotely, But I will honestly say, I live in Duluth, and there were multiple days in a row last winter that I never left the home. And apart from maybe a Teams meeting, I never saw another person. And for an extrovert, that's that's a challenge. So uh, we have to be very intentional at times. And you're with Lutheran Social Services, we should say. Okay. Who else can speak to... These solutions don't seem to be that complicated, and yet they must be. Yes, coming back over to it. This time you can introduce yourself, Jade, Jody. So I'm Jody Freiholtz, London. I'm the executive director and founder of Minnesota's largest peer-run network. We have 55 staff who all are in recovery, and um, one of the pieces that really helps them stay in recovery is having a job. I think that's really important. Someone talked about purpose. And so for many of us who've experienced mental health challenges, we are looked at, again, judged as not being capable individuals. But there's a couple of things, and I'm going to do a a brief advertisement here because you don't have to pay anything for this. But we have 24-7 peer support available. And a warm line that goes on all night long, And during the day, virtual peer support, you just click on and Zoom. No eligibility requirements, no billing, no... All you need to do is want to talk to somebody. And most of the people who call our warm line, which is about 2,400 people a month, just want somebody to hear them. Um, About 70% 
of those of us who deal with mental health challenges. I think we really need to bring up the point that are also dealing with chemical health and substance use challenges because we self-medicate. But people want to be heard. And even if they don't, these are anonymous services. So they don't have to share who they are. But they know they are being heard. And they can be vulnerable. And the team members that I work with have all been in some of those difficult places, um, either dealing with their own mental health challenges or, or substance abuse. Or if, if they come with a bonus, they've been incarcerated too, so we can check off three things. Um, because there are a lot of folks who are incarcerated who are dealing with mental health challenges. And so somebody mentioned connection, and that is absolutely key. And sometimes we need to connect with strangers, somebody who won't tell our story to anyone else. I hear you, Candace, back here, uh, agreeing with a lot of that. Introduce yourself, if you would. I'm Candace, and I'm with a new organization called Compassion Wings. And I go out to visit and to form connections with individuals who are marginalized. It's women who are incarcerated. It's women in sober living homes. It's individuals who are often ostracized and feel like they're outside of the society and marginalized in many ways. And I think that the one thing about loneliness is this doesn't take special degrees to address. It takes compassion. It takes people willing to show up to really listen to others, and to be willing to stick with people when the going gets tough. And yes, the going does get tough, but it's worth it. We can make a difference. We can address this problem. Candace, do you think too many of us are leaving this to organizations like yours and figuring they'll get it done, my life's busy, what could I do? I think a lot of times people want to do something and they don't know where to start. And so there's so many entities here tonight that people can connect with. And sometimes it is just seeing one another enough to say, do you need to talk? I'm willing to listen. And so it is being able to be present to people. We don't have to form organizations. We don't have to form programs. We have to be people to people. We have to be willing to stand in the gaps for one another, show up, and accompany one another. That's what we've been doing for centuries, and we've somehow forgotten how to do that. How did we forget how to do that, Monica? Gosh, that's a good question. I, I think in general, um, and, and you might want to edit this out, but we've moved away from faith. We've moved away from um, embracing spiritual protective factors, which include caring and connecting for each other. I think we live in a society that, you know, where many of us are focused on, you know, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our family. We don't want the stress or pressure of other people's things um, to come down on us. Yeah, I think it's a lot of reasons, but I'm amazed, like, hearing you talk about opening your house to adult foster and my neighbor in in the seat here had foster children that she adopted i mean that's that is giving i'm carrie miller you're listening to the rural voice we are in little falls minnesota at the black and white restaurant and we're having i think a really candid and heartfelt conversation about social isolation mental illness, and loneliness. And a lot of people have experienced this since the pandemic, but I'm hearing stories that precede the pandemic as well. So it's good to have you all here. I want to come to Don, because Don Hickman, who is head of the uh, foundation, the Initiative Foundation here, tell us a little bit Uh, about how you are going to identify the people that will receive these grants that are going out to organizations that are addressing what we're talking about. Thank you. Initially, we're just fishing for ideas. People can submit a short video clip or a written application just saying, here's my idea. Grants can only go to 501c3 nonprofits or local units of government, but if you don't have one of those lined up, 
we'll match make with you and so that we can find someone who can host the project. Um, so right now, uh, this will begin in early January. We hope to pursue the ideas within that very month, and I'd love to see the money out working as quickly as February. Tell me how you decided on loneliness and isolation as your priority for the money. An anonymous donor suggested this was an urgent need for the state, and we had already ironically been having this very conversation uh, that we needed to find resources to do it, and so a gold moment rose up and we're able to accelerate it and make it a bigger pool than we otherwise would. And our dream is that this will be different pilot projects, completely different, all over the region. But we can learn what works, what doesn't, and, and borrow the ideas that are effective. Right. Maybe the anonymous donor is here tonight. <laughs> Feel free to raise your hand if you are that generous person. Okay, I'm coming right up here. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your name, and what brought you here. My name is Sherwa Aden. I recently, not too long ago, I was the executive director of uh, Central Minnesota Community Empowerment Organization, a good friend of the Initiative Foundation, and uh, we've been very grateful for Initiative Foundation and their support in the last couple of years. But more recently, after my role there, I have been uh, working with... uh, 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 a company called Creating Care, providing uh, mental health services, housing, and a lot of other services that we are providing at the nonprofit throughout the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you? Are you seeing what the experiences that we're hearing about tonight, and what what would you add to that? I think in terms of uh, mental health. In, for example, in our community, we have layers. So first of all, access to mental health is a challenge on its own. And then additionally, you have a whole stigma and a culture and just layers and layers. And a lot of times we find it very difficult uh, to even provide the service itself because individuals, when you utter the word mental health, are just running away. There's a whole image that comes up in, in mind of kids being taken away and a person being uh, said uh, that they're crazy or this or that. So a lot of times we find that uh, the, the access to mental health in our community is, also, is very difficult because of the stigma that comes with it. And people that need it the most don't access it because they don't want to be seen different within the community. And that's where you come to the isolation that we're speaking of. Uh, those individuals are isolated even more because they can't even get the help because they're going to be isolated even more. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's my piece to it. I also want to come to uh, our guest who's sitting right next to you. You asked a really good question uh, when we were talking before we got started. Introduce yourself, if you would. My name is Jamal Imad. I'm just an elder. Um, I'm interested in what you were talking about, but in another phase, because... I came here, I look around, I didn't see people like looks like me or people of color, so the isolation is right there. It's palpable. You can see we are part of the group that I call unseen. So the community is there, but no one looks directly to them and no one talks about them. So there is a work to do. And uh, not just for immigrant population that I am part of, that actually my daughter told me certain times that we pass a a second-hand trauma to them, uh, talking about uh, what we passed through and what we've seen and what we did. But at the same time, you have African-American, Native American, that they have the problem, but you look around and you don't see them. So I would like to see uh, those groups integrated in the talk and see what they feel and how far they feel isolated. Really glad you came tonight. Yes, I'm sorry. 
Yes, ma'am, right here. Hi, my name is Ferdosa Iman, and I am planning to open a mental health and addiction culturally competent faith-based um, addiction and mental health treatment. Um, I'm a licensed alcohol drug counselor, and I became that because I saw the need in my community when I was in high school and college. And I saw what my community was struggling with, and the only thing that they knew to do is to send their kids back home. And that doesn't really help at all. It just creates more trauma, and just imagine not getting the mental health or addiction treatment that you need and not knowing the people that you're going to on top of it. So I wanted to create a different option, and I knew that me being from the community and speaking the language would, one, help the parents and help their mistrust, but also, like, I've been through the same thing that some of my, uh, some of the younger peers have been through, and I know how it feels to want to be the greater community wants you to be American. Your mom wants to be, you for you to be Somali. And you also have your faith on top of it. So you're getting dragged in a lot of different areas, which that also causes a lot of identity issues for a lot of the immigrant community. It's not just my community. It's a lot of immigrant communities that are going through the same thing. And the extra level that they have is the language barrier. And then on top of that, having to explain their faith and culture. And when I say faith, I'm talking about Muslims having to explain that to their um, practitioner. I personally had to, I went and got some help and having to explain things to my counselor made me feel like I was there to teach and that there were, she was learning something from me versus me getting the help that I needed. And that's the other part of all of this is we need more clinicians that are culturally competent. We need more people of color to be clinicians and there has to be other ways to help the immigrant community by using their culture and their faith to help them come from they come back from addiction or help them with their um, mental health and just being an immigrant and coming to a new country just imagine leaving everybody you ever known and just going so a lot of our parents have not just the trauma of war, but the isolation and loneliness of not having their family members, not having their um, cousins. And, and we're a very collective society, and everything is very much done through the family. And not having that connection does cause a lot of stress struggles because I see even with my mom she left all of her family members back home where at least me I have all my siblings like we all live in the same city and even if I'm going through some struggles I have them where the older generation don't have their siblings don't have their best friends don't have the people that they went through things with that they can share things with and some of them don't even can't go back or can't come here or their family members can't come here so it creates another layer of I have to help my family members back home as well. So it creates a lot of struggle. And we also keep those within our, within our communities. We don't share it with the greater community. So a lot of the greater community thinks that there's not some of these things going on. Um, I've, had, I've had to explain to people that some older people are getting, older Somali and Muslim -like patients are getting addicted to opiates and other things because they don't know what opiates are, and they don't understand what opiates are, so they start taking it, and then it gets out of control, because that's just how life is, right? And everything that they've been through on top of something that makes them feel good all adds up, but they don't also don't know how to get out of it. They don't know the options. They don't know, and even if there's the option, the older generation don't have somebody that speaks the same language as them. So the language barrier is there. Um, I have a patient today um, that does not fully understand English, but he is in a treatment center that is run predominantly by some people that speak English. And I'm glad that now he's my patient, so I can just switch to Somali with him and talk to him in that way. But how much of treatment is he missing out because of the lack of, of understanding or that language barrier in itself? And there needs to be more culturally competent, faith-based treatments for 
immigrant communities and other people that are not, that feel like they need to have, or not need to, but want to feel connected to somebody that understands how their culture and faith plays a big role in their lives. Thank you. You've brought up something that um, I also wanted to come back to that was mentioned, which is people who come to a community where there is a lot of deep institutional or, or deep familial memory, right? People have lived there for generations and somebody new moves in and maybe they don't look exactly like everybody that's been there forever. We've heard a couple of this has come up at a number of other town halls, whether it's um, I started a business and I didn't grow up here and people just basically pretended like you know, I wasn't there or I started a business and I'm a lot younger than I took over my family's business and it was really lonely and nobody really cared and I couldn't really talk to anybody about that. I'm just curious about whether you hear from people who just say, I feel like I'll never fit. I'd like to make my life in this community, but I feel like I won't fit. I think that uh, that has been the case in central Minnesota for, for a long time, and I'm sure uh, Jama can speak more into, to that. But I think that that's, that's really the reality. Uh, we have been, I grew up here, and... Uh, I've been living here for a long time, but sometimes even that itself is not enough uh, because uh, somebody, I, was, I, was, I had a meeting the other day with an individual and he was trying to explain what sucks means. And Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you can edit that. <laughs> but, but, but then I had to explain to him, hey, you know, I grew up here and you know, I have a good hang of the language. But I think that, that itself uh, comes from the, the isolation itself because he doesn't see, once he sees my face, it just, there's a whole block in his head and I'm just uh, someone to be talked down to as if uh, I'm not comprehending what he's saying. So I think a lot of times that's, that's the problem. And uh, as a community, we hear, but a lot of times it seems like what uh, Jama was saying is, is it, you're invisible. So when you have that and then on top of it you have culture and uh, what my friend here is speaking of, uh, you have culture and a lot of intricate and, and complicated things that are, that are within the community and then if anything happens in that circle that was left for you, then, then you're in trouble. So when we talk about, oh, why don't you just go to the psychiatrist and, and get some help, that's not an option. A lot of times, so I think that's what we've been trying to do ourselves uh, as a, as a community organizers and, and and community leaders is just educate folks. Hey, you can go out, get some help. Let's talk to someone. It's okay. It's okay to send your kids to uh, to talk to someone. It's okay for you to talk to someone. And I think that is what uh, that's what we've been trying to do. And, and and it's just I think it's a long way to go. That's the honest truth. Yeah. You know, again, though, I mean, organizations like yours and the one that you hope to open and it's all good i mean there's a lot of good work going on but until the community really sees it as an issue we cannot only rely on the professional or nonprofit organizations to do it right the fact is that that's right you can't rely on an organization or someone that is not in the community Okay, so an elder that is here and everyone leaves for work or in school and they stay home and they are isolated, that itself is a complicated problem. So we have to understand that a, the isolation that people has day after day inflicts their uh, cognition, their uh, everything that they want to do. I'm old, I'm here, I'm alone. I try to bring my mom in Minnesota. And she came in Nairobi. I was sending her a visa, but she called me one night. And I'm 72, by the way. So my mom, she was old, and she, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and she, and she told me, hey, I heard from someone 
that when you go in America, you get locked in a place and you don't have any contact with people. That is mostly true because she will live in a place, she will not have a contact, she doesn't know the environment, and I saw a lot of that. So what we need is family help. We need friends' help. We need people help. We need volunteers in the community. We need to be more open. We need to engage each other. We need to believe in people. That's what I think. I saw Lisa nodding at this. Lisa, introduce yourself. Um, I'm Lisa Warden. I work at Sourcewell as an education consultant. What do you think? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, we need that. And my work revolves around schools too and we know like if connection is important there's a piece of safety that needs to be there in order to feel like you're safe connecting right and we know there's a certain number and percentage of young people that don't even feel safe at school um much less maybe in their community too and i feel like a little bit of a barrier is that a lot of educators are people who school worked well for, like, right? Um, not all, because some, some they didn't. They went, I want to go back and be different. But for a lot of educators, school worked well for them, so well that they, they um, decided I want to go to more school, and then they also want to work in a, in a school all the time. And it can be hard to understand how school could not feel safe to them. Um, and which is kind of a bigger picture of understanding people's experiences, even if it's not your own. And I feel like that's a, a bit of a barrier that we have in general in our society is, but that's not, I don't, I, I've never felt that way, or I don't have that experience, or I don't believe that, so you can't. It can't be a real thing. And, and that, that, that perpetuates a stigma to getting help when we don't see people and their experiences and feelings as legitimate or, um, or real. Who else would like to speak to this? Just raise your hand if, yes ma'am. And introduce yourself if you would. Hi, my name is um, Kate Mudge and I um, I'm here I'm with West Central Initiative, although I'm here really just more for my, my own interest. Um, as I've been listening to everyone tonight talk, we, I, well, I'll start by saying three years ago, my wife and I moved from Midway, St. Paul, where I lived for a lot of years, to a tiny little farm in a tiny little town in Minnesota. And it was right during the pandemic. It was one of those crazy pandemic moves. And we really freaked out because we're like, oh, we're two gay women moving to a small town to a farm and we don't know how to farm. So, but we did it because it sounded like a good idea at the time. Um, And a lot of people were like, you're crazy. You're an extrovert. How are you going to live in the middle of nowhere? And so I came to it thinking, um, we talked about vulnerability before. Uh, I had to go into this. My wife would be fine if nobody ever came to the house ever again. She loves country living. I'm not, not that way. Um, so we just had to decide that like this is what we were going to do and put ourselves out there. And quite honestly, anyone that came to our house, our electrician, he got invited to dinner. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, we just went on a vacation with their family last last summer to a houseboat trip. Yeah, because we had to, you know? It's like, so my point in, in asking to speak tonight was we talk a lot about giving, but one thing that I've noticed about Minnesotans, I am not a native Minnesotan, I'm from Illinois, and nobody really loves being from Illinois like you love being from Minnesota. Most of us tend to leave. Um, but we're more receiving, And I think we're talking so much about what we give, what an organization gives, how we can volunteer. I am not discounting that. But let's remember that part of what this is is relational. And we have to be open to wanting to receive from others. And sometimes here in Minnesota, there's a bit of a barrier. I 
bulldoze my way through it. I give people pies to farm our land because we don't know how to, you know? <laughs> but um, that's, again, relational. And I want to... There, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect. Maybe it's a power thing of like, I'm going to be the giver. They will receive. We all need to receive each other. We all need to receive each other. That's super smart. Thank you. I'm really glad you were here. Um, who else would like to speak to this? Yes, ma'am. Introduce yourself. My name is Leslie McCoy. I am a community health worker here in town as a, um, at Family Medical Center, CHI, St. Gabriel's Health Hospital. So I see many people, but, but for me personally, everything that I've done in my life has brought me to this work, everything. I moved here 35 years ago, even after 35 years, I still don't feel like part of the community. But I've been in the community, I became a community health worker because I have been part of the community. But it's been tough, it's tough to feel a part of it, but I get to bring that to people who come to see me. I get to bring that to the people, the, the patients who come into the clinic that don't have, that come to the clinic as a social, they use it as, as, as a social time. They are so lonely. They'll come to the clinic day after day after day, and I get to see them. Um, I get to bring empathy. I get to bring the fact that my daughter died 16 years ago into someone who's so lonely because they've lost their child. I get to bring that to the, to these people in the community. I spent a, many, a lot of time today with a gentleman who moved to Minnesota three years ago purely because the state he was living in was not going to help him. Medicare was not going to be able to keep him alive. So he moved here, left his family, left everybody to come here. And he has been, he hasn't talked to anybody, he said, for weeks until he ended up in the ER the other night. He hadn't talked to anybody. I mean, his hair is down here. He hadn't been out. He had not been out of his apartment for weeks and weeks. And he was thankfully got to go to the emergency room. But he, he, what I'm really trying to get at is, is that everything that we've done in our lives has brought us to what we can give back. And I think that we, need, as a, we have a responsibility to do that. And I, I feel very fortunate I get to do that every day as a community health worker. Thank you, Leslie. Glad you were here. Who else would like to speak to this? Yes, sir. I've been listening to some of the key elements, not that I have uh, magical wisdom, but there's three words that begin with F that we can say. Yes, we can say these. It seems like food, fun, and fellowship bring people together. So if, we, if we're looking to make connections, sometimes it's as simple as that. I heard about the apple pie that, that uh, can be given out. And um, I'm just thinking if we show ourselves individually that we're open, I've been amazed at how people can kind of open up to me then, too. And uh, so if you can't do it with food, fun, and fellowship, just say, hey, I'm interested in you. How can I? I'd love to get to know you or something like that. And that goes through organizations, but individually as well. Okay. Really good. Who else? Yes, ma'am. Just one more thing, talking about the basics. I have this thing that I, I tell my kids all the time, like, Let's just, it, there's clarity. There's just, let's just be clear and kind. But I also say that, like, if there's somebody on your heart and the nudge is there, there's a reason it's there. It costs nothing to reach out to that person that has been on your heart, has been on your mind, to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. What's going on? That is free. You want to know what we can do that, it, I mean, individually? Just think about the people right now in your life that you know something's going on and you've said nothing. Grab your phone, send a text. Hey, thinking about you, how are you? I have a list of people that I know. You know, it's interesting because I myself at times feel extremely isolated. But I know that my role in my life is actually to be a reacher and to be a helper. And there's times when I'm so isolated, but I think about my friend who just lost her son her college-aged one-year-old son. And it's my responsibility also not to give up on her. We have to just, like, we just reach out. 
reach out to those people that you know right now in your mind that you've been thinking about that are struggling. And it is awkward. Address the awkwardness. I do it all the time. Address the awkwardness. It's, it seems so scary, but actually there's power in that fear of just taking a step. I really can't think of a better place to end. I mean, that's, that was really wonderful, eloquent. Thank you. I'm Carrie Miller, and you've been listening to The Rural Voice, a town hall series in the rural Midwest. For more information on the series and our 2024 season, go to ruralvoice.org.